When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A lot of people live in denial because they think that to be realistic is to be depressing. I'm Dr. Mike, host of Going There. It was the first song where I wrote about how I felt like my depression was killing me and I didn't want it. Going There breaks the stigma of mental health issues by having real honest conversations with your favorite musicians, including Alessia Cara, Lizzie Hale, Jewel, Jason Isbell, Gerard Way, Lauren Gray, Shamir, and Barty Strange. There was something there that was so raw, where I was like, wow, I can't believe someone would say that. Let's go there on Going There with Dr. Mike, brought to you by SoundMind Live and the Consequence Podcast Network every other Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Hi, this is Stuart Copeland giving you the story behind the song on Consequence. Welcome, listeners, to the story behind the song. I'm your host, Peter Chadi of Creative Media. In this month's episode, I interview Stuart Copeland in a back-to-back sequence of classic drummers from two of the most iconic bands from the past decades. Last month, it was Nick Mason of Pink Floyd, and this month, it's Copeland and the Police. Roxanne, you don't need to put on the red light. Those immortal words from the police's breakout iconic song still ring and resonate in our ears today. Yet Roxanne barely made an audible dent when it was first released in 1978 on the band's debut album Outlandis D'Amour, which celebrates its 45th anniversary this year. Copeland is widely considered to be one of the great rock and roll drummers of all time, with an utterly unique syncopated sound that served front and center as Sting sung and Andy Summers strum. Why does Roxanne feature a dissonant piano chord followed by Sting's laughter at the song's beginning? When will the band get back together to play us their hits? Well, dear listeners, all this and more will be answered in this endlessly entertaining episode. So take a listen as we dive deep into the story behind the song Roxanne with Stuart Copeland of the great band The Police. So Stewart formed the band in 1977. The band sold over 75 million albums. Uh, Their debut album, Outlandis D'Amour, came out 45 years ago. So it's celebrating a big anniversary this year. Of course, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2023. You are a solo artist, Clark Kent. You have another band, Gizmodrome, and you just won a a recent Grammy Award for that band. I think it was that yeah, band. Yeah, two Grammys. Two, f- two, gra- two Grammys in two years. That's- and last year, we got the Grammy for uh, a New Age album. And this year, the same record yeah. got a Grammy for Best Immersive Mix. So how does that happen, that it's two years? Well, the first album came out, won its award. And then we did another version of the album, which was an immersive mix. Yeah. And then what, hey, hey, cool. <laughs> put, the, put that up the following year. And got ourselves another plaque. The gift that keeps on giving. Really? Well, I discovered an incredible talent, this guy, Ricky Cage, yeah. over there in Bangalore, India. Yeah. 
oh man, my new, new musical love of my life. The guy is so incredibly talented over there and he assembles these incredible musicians and which resulted in that album. Well, very good. And also film scoring. You've, you've scored multiple films, Golden Globe nomination, operas, books, and a new book's going to be coming out. Videos, of course. Soundtrack to the Blackberry. That's, that's a very obscure brag, by the way. <laughs> if you'll indulge me for just a second. For a film composer, hired gun, the one-upmanship is how, many, how much were you paid per note? And whoever get, has the highest per note payment is top dog. And for that one, it's five notes. BlackBerry paid me for their branding, their logo. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Audio logo. Bam, 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 bam. Uh, one, two, three, four, five. That's five notes. And divide the fee. And they, they pay cash money. They don't pay royalty. They pay cash money buyout. So they get, they own it. They can do anything they want with it. They don't got to pay you no royalties. Cash money. So that cash money divided by five notes did, in fact, put one of my kids through private school for a year. For each note. How about that? That's I need, a brag. I need that kind of work. That's great work. That's great work. I want to get a little background, Stuart, of you and just how you became a drummer in the first place. But you do much more than just drum. Like I said, you have Clark Kent, you sing, you play multiple instruments. But how did you begin to focus on drumming as a young lad? Well, I think a buddy of mine had a a brochure from Slingerland drum company uh, with all the, you know, each page was a pit and the first page is a picture of a drum set. Wow. Cool. Look at that. The next page is a slightly bigger drum set with like two Tom Toms. Whoa. And then the center fold out was like a double bass drum kit with four Tom Toms. And oh my God, for a 12 year old, that was just like, you know, the pages got stuck together, of course, you know, but you know, <laughs> but the main thing was that I, I got me, you know, and I was banging on stuff. And my father, who was a musician himself, but my older siblings, none of them could play an instrument. The, the, they didn't have the bug, the gene. And so when I started banging stuff, he immediately, first of all, he rented me a drum set just to see what would happen. Yeah. And I was kind of a late developer. All my friends were shaving and, and uh, bulking up, and I was still just a little pipsqueak. And, but as soon as I hit those drums, I became an 800-pound silverback gorilla swinging through the trees, motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> I love even it. Even though I was 12 and a still skinny little kid, I could bang in those drums and suddenly be 10 times bigger. God, that's awesome. That, Instant that's... adult masculinity. That's what drew me to the drums. Oh. And then, and yeah. then... The night I was playing at the American Embassy Beach Club in Beirut, Lebanon, and uh, there we were playing James Brown, and there right in front of me was Janet McRoberts, who was like 15. Now, a 15-year-old to a girl, to a 12-year-old boy, that is just heaven revealed. And there she was, her body being moved to my rhythm. I'm making her move her hips like that. That there deepened the connection with music that's that it has that and by the way as an adult looking at what music does which is what no other art form does yeah. music is the only art form that will physically usurp motor control of your body you know literature doesn't do that movies poetry nothing does that but music will actually take your hips and cause them to maneuver to move in a suggestive fashion 
Amen to that. I I love all that. By the way, for those of you who are listening to the podcast and not watching, Stuart is endlessly moving, walking around while I sit here sedentary. So I'm I, I also applaud that. I'm walking around the sacred grove. Here it is, folks. The sacred grove. Wow. Where my fancy friends come to play. How many drum sets do you have in there? Well, just just one at the moment, but I, you know. Neil Peart came over and I and, and Danny Carey both, so I'd have two drum sets, but also got the percussion rig back there. Yeah. And I've 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 got the uh I've got the largest collection of uh the cheapest instruments money can buy. Well, they certainly work for you, so <laughs> that's that's great. Yeah, I mean I, I got the, the I got the, all the guitars, I got trombone, I got clarinet, I got timpani, and it's all wired for sound. The whole studio is plugged in and ready to go. So that when my chuckle buddies come over, we just jam and it's all in record. Uh, that's that's awesome. You need to put out an album or, or just put some of that music out there. Maybe you are already. Just well, it is the, out there. Go no, to but YouTube. some of the jam sessions. Oh, yeah. The jam sessions are on YouTube. Uh, it's look for, you know, Neil Peart at the Sacred Grove or Taylor Hawkins at the Sacred Grove or, or Snoop Dogg or Ben Ben Harper or Stanley Clark or... You know, my friends come. And by the way, I've got movie cameras around as well that I just turn them on. They got six hours of memory. I just flip them on, um, and p the, the, the guys forget about them until yeah. next day. I come in all hungover, and I, and I and I cut these tracks to videos, which are up on YouTube. Check them out. Free for all the people to enjoy. See, that's no wonderful. commercial agenda or anything. They're just up there. Stuart, you have a pretty good life, don't you? I love it. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I'm very lucky and very grateful. Well, and we're very grateful as fans. I want to get into your style a little bit. How did you create this very unique style that makes you one of the greatest drummers in the world? And this, like the, as a drummer myself, the syncopation that you have and how you're able to move your limbs in different speeds and all that sort of thing. How did that come to be? Well, the, the limbs part is, I described. I was studied by a, a UCLA um, study group who were studying creativity, and they put me in an MRI just to see what's going on in my brain when I think up a tune and everything. And one of the things they found is the connection between my two lobes, the somethingus maximus connects the two lobes, is very thin in my case. I got amygdala the size of watermelons, but the connecting thing, and what that means is the two lobes of my brain are less connected than most people. And I don't know if that's because when I was 16, I was separate, learning separation of the different limbs or whether it's an effect of what I did or whether I was born that way, which made it easier for me to do this. Who knows? Uh, but that's, that's that limb independence. But the cultural stuff, where did that come from? That, my secret sauce is that it's Arabic. I grew up, my formative years musically were in Beirut, Lebanon, mm -hmm. uh, in the middle of the Middle East, surrounded by Arabian culture. And Arabic music happens to have a rhythmic foundation, uh, which is an emphasis on the third beat in the bar, and you subtract the one. Da, da, three, four, nothing. Two, three, four, two, three, four, two. And so that absence of one, emphasis on three, shares a foundational structure with reggae, which also emphasizes the third beat of the bar and hides the one. 
And so when we discovered reggae and started kind of introducing that attitude into our music, I already had it in my DNA and I could do it wrongly, not correct reggae, but kind of reggae adjacent, which was actually the influence of Arabic culture. You know, it's, it's, first of all, that's fascinating. So much of the police's song sound is unlike many bands where the percussionist, the drummer is supporting the song and, and I'm not going to say a side piece to it, but not a leading actor in it. Whereas with your drumming, it is such an essential part of the overall sound of the police and a, it sets the tone really. And that's, I, a I, 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 as you were saying all that, I was thinking about how Stingo would be responding. He would be nodding his head vigorously. Uh, yes, that's right. <laughs> there was all kinds of banging and stuff going on there that had nothing to do with a song I wrote. <laughs> well, but one of know, the nowadays we, we both appreciate what that, that clash produced. Yeah. Yeah, it's magic. One of the things you've said, and before we get into the stories, that you that you play with impunity. That's the word. You play with impunity. What do you mean by that? Well, it's an excuse. Uh, I play with lack of discipline. Uh, it just seems to work better. I'm, I'm a terrible session musician. I'm, you know, usually I, I had to do it back in the day to earn my living. Yeah. But I'm not really good at remembering the arrangement the way you're supposed to. And they'd say, yeah, that second chorus, go da-ba-da-bunga-da-unga-da-hunk. And I'd get to that part and I'd think of something else to play. Uh, and I'd play, you know, differently every time. So I'm kind of a pain in the uh, in that regard. I play just instinctively. And uh, I dignify it by calling it impunity. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it's just I play instinctively. I'm not thinking, you know, when I'm composing... I think a lot. Yeah. Uh, and when I'm creating a piece of music in my head or putting it on the page, that's a completely different animal to the guy banging stuff. You know, when I'm sitting on the drums banging things, I'm not thinking at all. I'm just instinctively doing what comes up. And I guess we can call it impunity. That makes it sound really cool. And you're, it, it does sound cool. And you're left-handed, is that right? Yes. But yet I read that you, it's a... I didn't even know there was a right, I guess there's a right-handed drum kit because usually you have the, well, I don't even recall when well, I on drums, things up. On drums, you don't, left-handed people like Ringo, it's, or guitar even, it's, musical instruments require both hands to be very clever. And uh, left-handedness or right-handedness doesn't really make a difference because on the drum set, both hands are working. Um, and, to try and rearrange a drum set to make it a left-handed drum set means you're never, ever going to get to sit in with a band because it's just too disruptive to move the, you got to move everything, you know. Yeah. Guitar, at least you can just turn it upside down like Jimi Hendrix did and play any old guitar. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to restring it or anything. But left hand, it makes you play differently. Certainly Ringo Starr played differently. Just his his... Came up, he leading with the left hand instead of the right hand just creates different drum. But both hands are working on any instrument. Yeah, yeah. Let's get back to you and forming the band back in 1977. I think that's when you formed. And you, well, you lay out the story of how you met Sting and how you met Andy 
and came together as the band and created your song, Sound. Well, it's funny you should ask me about that. It so happens that I've got a book coming out. There you go. <laughs> See, teed Let's up. sell some teed books. <laughs> teed up. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, I was playing in a prog rock band called Curved Air, touring up in Northern England. And a local journalist uh, in Newcastle said, hey, you got to check out our hot local band. And they were called Last Exit. And we went to see them, and they were indeed a really great band. But in the band was a bass player who could sing. And I was looking for either I needed, I needed, I wanted a three-piece band. I already had the name, The Police. But I needed a three-piece band where either the guitarist or the bass player needs to also be the singer. You know? Um, and I saw that guy. He could play bass and sing. And he had his own amp. Okay, he's in. That's it. Qualified right there. But there was another factor which did come did play a part, which was a golden ray of celestial light descending from the heavens upon his magnificent brow. This shaft of celestial light indicated that this guy was going to be my meal ticket. And uh, so I got his number. And I called him sometime later, yeah. just as the, the punk scene was breaking out, and I wanted a band. And I wanted that, that bass player up in Newcastle, that Lion King guy. You know, <laughs> let me give him a call. And uh, I called up the journalist. Yeah. And asked him for his telephone number. And I was telling him about this cool scene happening in London, this new punk scene. It's really great. You know, it's a whole new thing. Tear down the wall. And I didn't notice because I was talking so fast that the temperature was dropping. And uh, when I came, oh, so, so that bass player guy, you know, give me his number. And he said, no. What do you mean, no? I don't want you stealing, you know, this guy from our great Newcastle, you know, band. And punk, are you kidding? I'm not giving you his number. And so I hung up and. And I'm walking around there thinking, God darn it, gosh darn it. So finally, I came up with a much more convincing argument. And, you know, with something along the lines, give me his fucking number. That's pretty uh, convincing. Yeah. Uh, so I called him back. Uh, only this time he didn't pick up. His girlfriend did. Hello. Uh, yeah. And uh, it turned out she was a Curved Air fan. That was the band I was playing at. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Oh, great. Anything I can do to him? Well, you know that that bass player, Sting, they plays in last. He's got his phone number. She's uh, yeah, Phil's got it. Let me find his phone. About half a tick. And I can hear her walk, her footsteps receding. And then her footsteps coming back. I'm, okay, here it is. 034-791-283. And I called him up. And pretty soon there's that voice that we're all so familiar with now uh, on, the, on the line. And I say, first of all, this is a conversation about just you, not your band. Just, just you. You want to, you know, I got this idea, you know. And he says, keep talking. Ah, oh, that's funny. And that voice, keep talking. Yeah. You know, it's amazing how singers sing so beautiful, but have really gruff voices. You know, <laughs> Bono's like that too. His speaking voice is so different from his singing voice. Yeah, Anyhow, a couple things. First of all, keep talking means, okay, I'm ready to deal without my band. Second thing, keep talking, which is what I had to do for the next two years to keep him in the band. And uh, every, you know, as soon as he got down to London, and people got to look at him. People were whispering in his ear every which way. And just to hold on to that guy, you know, I had to keep talking. Yeah, we got a photo session, you know, tomorrow. We're, we got a, you know, we got gigs coming. We got, you know, I had to keep talking, keep things moving forward uh, so that I wouldn't lose him. But what was your pitch for him to leave Last Exit and join you on this mission with the police? couple things. First of all, it was in London, which is where he knew he had to get to, the big city. Mm -hmm. Second of all, I was living in a squat at the time, but it was in Mayfair. 
And Mayfair is like the top, in the British Monopoly, Mayfair is the top purple one. And uh, long story, what I was doing in this two-story penthouse apartment in the middle of Mayfair, for which I was not paying rent, long story, but he comes in, he sees, wow, this is, oh, okay, something going on here. He was impressed by that. But the really weird part is that I played in my tapes that I made of my crap song, my three chord tricks, my fake punk songs that, you know, it had to be punk because that was the only scene that was happening. And I played him these songs that I had, which were just bass lines with yelling, and uh, he did not run away. That's the miracle. And I've still got those tapes. And for this book, I pulled this diaries book, I pulled them out and listened to them, and they're pretty dire. <laughs> Would you ever have those see the light of day? Oh, yeah, they okay. will. Okay, yeah, cool. They're, one, one of these days is going to be an Outlando deluxe edition uh, with those songs on it. And also in my book, uh, in the fancy version, stupidly priced version, as opposed to the regular book priced version, there's a CD with some of these tracks on it. And the amazing thing is, they were pretty basic. And in fact, we stuck together for a couple of years with me talk, doing a lot of talking. But we, when he plugged in that bass and we got blasting away, we knew that we were in the right company. And it wasn't until, we didn't have Roxanne. Uh, Andy, you know, it wasn't until Andy joined that Sting was able to start writing songs. But from the very beginning, did you have this reggae-ish kind of feeling? Was that no. something? No, that came later. Um, it was strictly Ramalama punk. And with I, I knew four chords, and I stretched them pretty thin to, to create our set. But when Andy yeah. joined, which he had much more sophistication in his playing, that's when Sting, his ears pricked up, and he started writing songs. Three, obviously, to make that kind of sound is not a common thing in rock and roll. So how did you, why did you think of three as being what you wanted? That was the goal of your band. Uh, lots of room in the car. You know, one driver, three band members, everybody's comfortable. That's, you know, one, an extra singer, and that's like three guys got to hunch up in the back seat there. Fuck that. I and by it. the way, very practical. Know, well, yeah, and Jimi Hendrix did it. Cream did it. Why not? Yeah. Even Grand Funk Railroad did it. Yeah. <laughs> I Not to know. mention ZZ Top. It can be done. That's true. I didn't. You just need to find two real motherfuckers to complete the circle. Yeah. Listen, I'm going to take a quick break, and then we're going to get into the story behind Roxanne. But thank you for that musical journey to get up to the point of the first album and the classic, iconic song, Roxanne. So everybody will be right back with Stuart Copeland from the great band The Police and so many more things as we dig in a little bit more deeply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, we are back with Stuart Copeland. So, Stuart, let's talk about Roxanne. And going into the studio with Outlandis, 
and how that just, why don't you just take us through the journey of that song as you remember it, like from the very first germ of it and how it became, you know, how you then took that song and into the recording studio and the production of it. Uh, well, we were in Paris, uh, 1970, probably beginning of 78. And we were doing shows with, um, Generation X, which was Billy Idol's band. Yeah. Um, and uh, all the musicians were all good buddies. We we're hanging out in London, but Sting kind of carved off on his own that night. Ended up in the Pigalle, which is the red light district. And he saw these women of the night. And it sort of piqued his interest. And he went home and wrote that song, Roxanne, which is, it was sort of a love song to a prostitute. Then he hit it. It had no place in the police as we were in those days. Sometime later, months later, he, he was um, actually staying with Andy when his house was being repainted or so, for some reason he was overnighting at Andy's place. Then he was strumming these chords uh, like a bossa nova. And Andy says, cool. And his ears pricked up and said, we should do that. And he says, no, Stuart will never go for that. You know, it's not punky enough. It's a ballad for God's sake. Bossa nova, are you kidding? But uh, Andy insisted. So next band rehearsal, Andy says, Stingo, that song, you know, the one about the prostitute, let's work on that. I heard it and thought, well, let's rock it. Let's take it out of Bossa Nova. Let's do something. Well, let's make it ours. In fact, let's do the rhythm backwards. Put two where one should be and one where three should be and do it upside down. And in those days, Sting was very malleable because he, he hadn't been confirmed as a writer of hits. He still felt kind of codependent mm -hmm. with the rest of the band. And just to keep us interested, he was would listen to our input and be much more malleable than he became later. So we were able to mess up the rhythm and add the chunky, heavy guitar chords to it and do a noisier chorus to keep it, you know, something fit for a rock band. Even a punk band could get away with it, borderline. And so that became the version of Roxanne that people are familiar with. So in the studio, who produced the album or that track? Was that... Or did you produce it yourselves? Uh, we had an engineer who was kind of like referee. If anyone would be producer, we'd call them, you know, Nigel Gray. We, he, but really, he was an engineer. He knew where to put the microphones, but he was also had a great bedside manner and was a great referee. But we produced it. The three of us by two against one is a great way to arrive at a band decision very efficiently and quickly. And so we we're actually quite effective as producers. Uh, in later albums, it was we we could have done with you know uh, with more umpiring, more refereeing because it got very difficult um, because now we all knew how to make records. At first, Andy and I knew how to make a records, but our principal songwriter had never made a record before. It was easier, but it got a lot harder later. For the first album only, we had been playing the songs live, so when we went into the studio, we could just run them down and that's it. So the recording of the backing track came very quickly because we had been playing it on stage. The vocal has that moment where Sting does his vocal overdub. And in the introduction, he's waiting for the song to begin. And they say, hang on, uh, we're going to run the tape back. And the tape was running, so he sits back on the piano, uh, which is right behind him, and he, forgetting that the lid was open. So he sits down and plays a butt chord, uh, I think B flat minor. And then he laughs because, oops, that was the, you know, and that's on the record. Which is so classic because... I've always wondered about that. And so that's a real story that he sat down and that was just his laughter when he sat down and made that mistake and you kept it in there. 
Yeah, it had a vibe. It had nothing to do with the song. Completely out of keeping with the sentiment of the lyric. Completely. But kind of had a vibe. Oh, yeah. No question about it. When you're done recording the album, how did you feel about that particular track, Roxanne? Did it stand out to you three immediately? or No. It was still kind of an outlier. And we were recording, and my brother Miles came down, who was not yet our manager. Yeah. Uh, but I used his offices. I used his Rolodex. Uh, and he was a huge uh, resource for the band. But he came down just to offer advice. And uh, he used to supply something very valuable called Dumbass. He doesn't know anything about music, but he knows a hit when he hears it. And he is studiously ignorant of chords or anything musical because it's irrelevant. Amazing. If folks are going to like it, they're going to like it not because it's, you know, a flat minor. And so he was there to provide some dumbass, keep us honest. And uh, he listened to all of our songs and said, well, they're all kind of standard. I'm not hearing anything that really, you know, uh, gets me going here. And we got, well, we got one left, which we were afraid to play for him because it was kind of subdued. He was like me, kind of a, you know, punk messiah at the time. It had to be punk. Uh so, but we played it to him somewhat reluctantly, and immediately his ears perked up. Now, that is a unique sound. I'm going to take that to a record company, see if we can get ourselves a deal. And uh, that's kind of when he became our manager, right there. He said, now that I can work with. And he took it to a record company, A&M Records, and the rest is history. Yeah, I mean, Actually, no, actually, there's a little bit more. It disappeared without a trace. When A&M put it out, they signed us for like a couple singles, mm -hmm. which they tried Roxanne, Kansas, Losing You, they both sank without a trace. Because, in the case of Roxanne, we went off to Germany to earn some money playing as a backing band for a German artist over there. But that's how we fed ourselves while our single came out, so we were not there to promote the record. Soon after that, I had a record that um, was just too dumb for Sting to sing called Don't Care. So I recorded, played all the instruments myself, guitar, bass, drums, even sang the damn thing. But in the radio, BBC Radio 1, picked it up, put it on the playlist. So I actually had a hit as Clark Kent with a secret identity because the police were already written off by the critics as uncool, unhip, and fake. You know, three carpetbaggers, previously long-haired, bell-bottomed, they spotted us as carpetbaggers right away. And so with a secret identity as Clark Kent, I actually had a hit and went on national TV to play the song, but I didn't want to play by myself. So I had Sting and Andy pretend to be my band, all in masks. Uh, there we were on top of the pops. And that was our first time on national television under the name of Clark Kent. And around about then, I'm thinking, wow, this is cool. I hit on my own. I don't need these guys. Ha -ha. Fortunately, Clark Kent disappeared without a trace in the nick of time. Uh, and then right after that, Can't Stand Losing You came out for the second time and actually surpassed Clark Kent by about two points on the chart. And the rest is history. But was it because Clark Kent, the three of you were on stage on that program that that's the that's the reason why i can't stand losing you was then released once again because no. the, okay so why how did well that... they're unrelated uh first of all we were all in masks so nobody who knew what, was what, on stage at that time what and kind of, i mean what kind of masks i'm just curious uh sting was in a gorilla mask andy was in a brezhnev mask <laughs> yeah, big big man i actually wasn't the bbc wouldn't let me mime with a mask because it looks stupid, you know. And you, were Clark, and you were Clark Kent. And so they painted up my face to obscure the identity. Didn't fool anybody. But fortunately, we were, nobody knew who we were anyway. We weren't anybody. 
you know, everybody thought, who is Clark Kent for about five seconds in the zeitgeist of London? Who is Clark Kent? Is it Frank Zappa? Is it David Bowie? Is it, I don't know, um, Mahatma Gandhi? But the enemy busted me, fortunately. But the record company kept, they did persevere with the police because they had a hit with Clark Kent. But that was kind of behind the scenes. Okay. And then afterwards, the second song that was released was Roxanne. And then Roxanne, did it immediately get some real play or did that kind of bubble up a little bit? Well, eventually it did hit. At first, the BBC didn't add it to their playlist. They just, we didn't make the cut. Simple as that. However, my brother Miles, he's a great marketer, said, banned by the BBC because it's about a prostitute. And we made a lot of hay out, banned by the BBC, the police, who are too, you know, uh, insurrectionists, too dangerous. Oh, that dangerous band, the police. And we made a bit of hay out of that. But eventually, I think second or third time around, it did make the playlist and did become a hit. In fact, it became a hit while we were on tour in America. <clears throat> and we were struggling across the ocean of America, playing clubs, trying to, to break the big one. Yeah. And we went back to England at the end of this tour. Then we had heard that um, Roxanne had hit the charts, but it didn't really make much sense to us. Then we were booked on a tour supporting a, uh, another band called Los Albertos Trios, which is a comedy band. Uh, a really great band, actually, but it was all comedy. As soon as we went out on stage for the first show, it was pretty clear whose tour it was. And it was just full of, you know, after all the dues we paid, after being a fake punk band, yeah. And discovering that we're actually kind of a good prog band in America and all the journey and the struggle, we emerge suddenly in that shrieking high-pitched sound, which is the sound piranhas would make if they could make a sound, of the tweeny boppers. And unbelievably, we emerged from the darkness as a boy band. God, crazy. Go figure. And we were on the front of all these teeny bopper magazines and Sting was all Mr. Beautiful. You know, who go figure. We tried to be a punk band. We're actually too sophisticated for that, but ended up as a boy band. God, that's incredible because that album is certainly feels punk to me. It was never, it was something that was completely different at the time. But when the, you're as handsome as Stingo, the Tweeny Boppers are going to go for it. Well, don't sell yourself short. Come on, Stuart. Yeah, yeah. Okay. There were three blonde heads. Yeah. Okay. Th there you go. By the way, one of the great album covers, Ghost in the Machine, with the you know the digital. I I, I yeah. still think that's that's classic. Okay, yeah, we're a lot take... of people still don't know what it means. Really? Yeah, it's the three. That's the yeah. three of us represented by LEDs. Of course. But at the time, people were mystified by it, and our <laughs> management were convinced that that cost us several million in sales that's because amazing. it didn't have a picture of the three blonde heads. Yeah, it was always pretty obvious to me, but maybe that's the way my brain works. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and then we're going to get into Police Deranged, the upcoming album from Stuart Copeland. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we are back with Stuart Copeland. And now, Stuart, let's talk about this new album of yours called Police Deranged for Orchestra, which is, I was listening to some of the tracks before this and Roxanne, because we were talking about Roxanne, and it is deranged in a really kind of remarkable reinvention, reimagination way. But 
How did this all come together and how did you think about taking this approach and releasing this album? Well, the pieces actually do come from police, just other bits of police that you never heard before. And it came about as a result of a movie that I made from Super 8 footage that I shot <coughs> of from the motels to the stadiums of shooting everything that moves. And 20 years later, they invented computers and I was able to digitize all that and make the home movie from hell, which just on an off chance I sent to Sundance. Yeah. Who wrote back and said, hey, look, we'll show the movie. We'll present your movie, which meant that I had to make it into a real movie, which means it needed a soundtrack. And I was at that time a professional film composer and I knew how of the movie, uh, but we didn't have film music, but it had to be police music, but just alternative police music. So I found imprints from stage, uh, blind alleys in the studio, just like other police alternative versions of stuff, and carved them together to create what I called at the time derangements, other versions. And then another unrelated story is that I was playing shows with orchestra as a result of my 20 years as a film composer. I had an involuntary education in how you use an orchestra and how to put it on the page so that they will play it. So those two things came together, my work with orchestra and these derangements to bring the world police deranged for orchestra. Well, you're touring throughout the year and you have some, you have, I think you've already had a, a U.S. show or two. But no, I've played 25 shows here. Oh, I was in, oh. yeah, I was in Chicago area last week. Okay. Lon in London a couple of weeks before that. I'm heading out the, you know, I've been playing the show for like a year now. And eventually the penny dropped. Hey, let's make a record of this. So we have. So what has the reaction been to from the fans? Do they have any kind of expectation coming in of what this experience is going to be like? Or what, what do you think? Well, they're not coming after me with pitchforks. In fact, <laughs> uh, the shows go over really well. It's a real barnstormer of a show because with the orchestra, yeah, you know, and I go and I sit in with, you know, the Vancouver Symphony, the Chicago, the Cleveland, Atlanta, Nashville symphonies in those cities. And I just bring my charts, flop them out, count them in, and they play it. Um, and I have, but I do bring three sisters, soul sisters on the mic, three beautiful women who are like the Supremes or the Chiffons. It's sort of like hearing the police sung by the Ronettes. So that's what we do on stage. And people are curious. I do play hide the hit sometimes, but by the end of the show, the place is rocking. The show never fails. It's a real easy win, this show, because everybody knows the songs and it's a great musical environment and it's a pretty slam dunk of a show. So when you play and you tour with these different symphonies, what is the process of that? Oh, it's real Obviously, simple. I show up in Atlanta, two o'clock at their symphony hall. Uh, I meet the orchestra for the first time. Hi, all doing? Hi, all doing? Okay, one, two, three. And we, we play it down. And I have two and a half hours rehearsal with Come the orchestra. Come on. Yep, two and a half hours rehearsal with the orchestra. Doors open at seven, show at eight that night. How does and, that even happen for all these musicians? They're well, just because it's on good? the page. It's on the page. I put it on the page. I, I don't just put what notes to play. I put how to play them. It's not just da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's da-da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. And I got to put that information on the page, the articulation, the dynamics, everything, the shape of how they play this stuff. And they read this stuff. Their ethos, their reason for drawing breath is to faithfully play the page. Now, yeah. your rock musicians need six weeks of rehearsal of arguing and compromise and, and throwing ideas back and forth. 
to get their show together, but the orcs put it on the page and they will play it. God, it's pretty amazing that it does. And they play it incredibly well too. They really lean into it. And I, you know, I, I, I chat up the orchestra. I've got my pickup lines. You know, I go over to the, I go over to the woodwinds and in a loud voice, I say to the oboe, so tell me about your reeds. It's an orchestra joke. You know, they tell drummer yes. jokes in rock and roll, but they tell yeah. oboe jokes in orchestra and viola joke. And I go and I bond with them all, make friends with them all. So that when we play the show, they're my crew. They're, they're ready to rock. And I turned the mighty uh, Nashville Symphony for just one night into a rock band. Uh, that's great. And do you notice when you go from orchestra to orchestra, is there a different feelings or different sounds that are evoked oh, yeah. across? So there's a different personality with them? Amazingly, because they're playing exactly the same information, exact, theoretically exactly the same way as per their instructions on the page, in fact, the Chicago Symphony does have a different feel from the Cleveland Orchestra. It's hard to put your finger on it. In some orchestras, the brass section is particularly bright. In some yeah. orchestras, the strings really shine. And even though they're all playing the same music, human beings, we all have two eyes and a nose and one mouth, but we're all really different. And the same is true of the orchestras. Even though they have the same components, they have exactly the same marching orders. They each orchestra has its own personality. Since you mentioned this about the hum the humanity behind it and the personality behind it and how the page the notes on the page are exactly the same, but the sounds that come out are not. I have to ask you about artificial intelligence and and how that's impacting the music industry and the different feelings. I don't know if you saw what Peter Gabriel was writing and then what Grimes is doing, where Peter Gabriel is very much a it's another tool. Um, so he's, you know, everybody needs to embrace it, that sort of thing. Grimes, of course, has embraced it. Other artists are understandably, um, very concerned for a variety of reasons, including re taking their voices, taking their music stems and creating something without the participation of the artist themselves. So how do you feel about AI in your world? I would agree with Peter Gabriel. It's a tool. We just got yeah, artists can use it. An analogy would be the drum box, which was originally designed for a lounge keyboard player to have some kind of accompaniment without having to hire a guy. And you'd have a little box with four settings, rock one, rock two, samba, and rumba or something. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, it would go, and the pianist could play along with this electronic accompaniment. Well, I got myself one so that I could have a drummer in my living room while I was doing my home recordings and I could play guitar to the drum box. And they gradually got more and more sophisticated to the point where people were actually, I think the first person actually used one on a record that you could hear, I think was Peter, uh, was, um, uh, what's his name, drummer, singer, Phil Collins. Uh, it's the first time you could actually hear the drum box on the record. And from there, it kind of grew and was considered to be a great threat to drummers. But in fact, drummers like myself, we got hold of these things and started making use out of them ourselves. And they became another tool used by drummers. And it turns out that human beings love to dance to an electronically created rhythm. Go figure, this primal impulse to thrust our pudenda in public <laughs> can be most stimulated by a machine. How does that work? But anyway, but it's true. Humans are, you know, the, the regularity of it does. Well. So AI 
is similarly a tool. It can be threatening, but it can be used as well. Uh, I will share with you a secret. Don't tell anybody. I won't. But uh, I unfortunately did establish a tradition of, you know, every Valentine's, Mother's Day, and birthday, I write a little poem for my wife and love of my life. And it brings me great joy. Or rather, it did 30 years ago when I started this. And uh, 30 years later, I... I've used up my rhyming dictionary. <laughs> I love you because you're blue. Let's go to Tiffany's and get something new. You know, I, That's so, not bad. Yeah, so AI, except I've used that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's AI comes along and I put in Mother's Day. Okay, mother, she's the boss. Give a few uh, you know, lines and it comes back. And it's pretty anodyne, pretty, pretty lame, but it's something to work with. And I can jigger it here and push it there and... and uh, you know, uh, just sort of tart it up and change a few words, and I got something. And so AI gave me kind of a starting point. It's not good enough, but it gave me a starting point. I once tried to give me give me an opera plot, okay? You know, a story got this element, that element, this historical character. Give me a give me a plot, and oh my god, it did. It came up with really lame stuff, and I couldn't yeah. use any of it. So it's early days, though. It is uh, early days. Let's, you know, in, in two years or maybe probably in 10 minutes, it's going to be much better than it is now. Yeah. I mean, no question. Yeah, it's going to be threatening. You know, there are some things in life. You know, communism is a fantastic idea morally, inarguably superior morality, but it just doesn't work when humans get their hands on it. And I think the idea that all information should be available to everybody anywhere, that's got to be a good thing, Right. No, it actually is causing strife and disharmony in our communities. It's a, an inarguably good thing, but can cause evil. And I think AI is going to do a lot of good things, but it's also, as people are saying, probably pretty dangerous too. Yeah, yeah. I certainly understand from the artist's perspective, you know, bo obviously both perspectives, but the idea of taking police stems, you know, stems from your songs and your voices and your drum, you know, your drum beats. And oh, all that's that. already out there. Those, those, those are, all, those samples are already out. There. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, I remember John Bonham was the first where you could, you could get John Bonham grooves and yeah. that's, that's from the record, damn it. Yeah. And they were available as, as samples. I think I might've even used them in a film score in a couple places. You know, it's a tool, you yeah. know, um, uh, Bruce Springsteen used my snare drum from Every Breath You Take in one of his big hits. I've been sampled all over the place. You know, Message in a, uh, Every Breath You Take, Andy was sampled ferociously by Puff Daddy yeah. to create a whole new song. So the AI is late to the game when it comes to ripping off the original artist. All right. R ripping off has been there from the very beginning. Yeah, oh yeah. Okay. Well, one thing going back to the police derange for orchestra. One of the things I read is that as you were piecing pieces together, you came to the quote unquote unpleasant conclusion that Sting is a fucking genius and Andy's also a genius. But th that's what I read. So, yeah. And all this is my revenge. You know, most guitarists, they can get an amp that goes to 11. Yeah. But all Andy, his fingers go to 11. You know, I'm sure he's got 11 or 12 of those things, those chords he holds down. How does he do that? I don't even know. Yeah, it takes me a whole orchestra to reproduce Andy's stuff. One of the things that you are coming up with, again, something I read, 
was a rock opera with Chrissy Hind of Pretenders. And uh, is, that, is that something that's going to be seeing the light of day this year? Uh, it played uh, in Italy. It opened in Italy last summer. I didn't and know. And we're, we're, we're productions of that, even as we speak. Um, but it's not really a rock opera. It's an opera opera with opera singers doing all okay. their opera thing. But within it, one of the characters, it's about witches in the Alps and the witch hunts of olden times. But one of the characters is an anomaly. She's an anachronism. And she's, a, you know, like she's the head witch is like from the future. When I figured, let's get a rock sound for that one character. And uh, since it's about women, I figured out how to talk to a woman. And so I called Chrissy, who is no ordinary woman, it turns out. And she got in there and she completely lobotomized the whole concept of the opera, which to, you know, to, you know, which is a really good thing. And she wrote five songs, but mostly it's an opera opera with just this rock element in it. It's called will The that, Witch's Seed. Will that become a soundtrack? Uh, I'm working on all that. That's all in the future. Okay. And then you have your upcoming book, Stuart Copeland's Police Diaries. That comes out later this year. That's what you were talking about. Yes. The actual pages from my diaries of those years uh, with modern commentary about what it all meant. The day Sting and I first met, our first shows, um, how much we got paid, how much the truck cost, how well we did, and the general grind of our time together in those years before Andy joined. Well, including when Andy joined, we still starved. It took a minute, but then Sting started writing those big songs, and uh, the police then ate everything in its path. So I have to ask you the same question I asked Nick Mason that everybody wants to know. Is there any chance that you all will get back together to do a tour, a new album, or anything along those lines? Uh, very slim. I don't think so. We're all three of us enjoying playing these same songs. Uh, Andy's doing a tour in Brazil with a band. Uh, and actually, he's, he's playing with a drummer who's a good friend of mine. And that's probably a great show. I'd go see that show. Uh, Andy and uh, Joao Baron. that's going to be a cool show. Uh, and Sting's, of course, playing them too. So all three of us are out there. and We've talked amongst ourselves and, and remarked on the fact that how great it is to play these songs without those other two assholes. <laughs> you know, my so bass player doesn't turn around and give me shit. So what would it take? Oh, I don't know. I have to put you on the spot a little bit. You know, we're getting along so well. Okay. I mean, like life the way it is. Yeah. And it would be fun. It would be fun because it is fun inarguably, to play to a stadium and to rock the house with a stadium. That is a lot of fun. But a police tour is such a huge thing that we're like cogs in a wheel. We're like, even though we might be central to the mission, we're just soldiers uh, in a huge army. And though it's just, it eats your life. It's just too big. And we're kind of enjoying life as civilians. Major, maybe one major event for... Climate change. I don't know. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'm going to think. I'm going to think about some ideas. Um, okay. All right. Come back. Get, get back to me. All right. Well, at least you have the invitation to come back to you about that. So that's good. That gives people hope out there. Yeah, I'd give and, it like an easy 1% chance. Okay. Well, it's not zero. That's good. Yeah. Everything's lightning in a bottle. We've talked about all the different things that you've done and not all of them. So many different things. So many different medium media that you work in. And what haven't you done that's on your bucket list? I'm getting into ballet. I have done ballet, but, I'm, and I, but mostly I've been doing opera. But I'm getting back into it, inspired by 
Instagram and TikTok. And these dances that people are doing are amazing. And I want to take that stuff into the fine arts world with an orchestra and in, those fi in the, the fine ballet companies. And I'm really moved by that stuff. I, I don't know any of their names, these, these people, but like in, in Korea and in, Amer in Romania, there are these strange clips of like Eastern Europeans with baggy suits and neckties and bow ties even doing these bizarre comedic dances. I love all that stuff. And so I want to write some ballet. I regard an opera house as a building with an orchestra in the pit, all yeah. kinds of talent on the stage and all kinds of infrastructure for me to tell a story with music. And so even though ballet is not an inspiring word, the talent that is available under that banner is very cool. What are you most proud of? What, what would you, up to this point in your career? I'm sorry, but it's a namby-pamby answer. It's my kids. Ah, I know, love I got, it. I got seven kids, five grandkids, and four grandpuppies. And that is the meaning of life. That is the reward. I got my Grammys, and I got my cold discs, and I got all kinds of other accolades, but they fade. But the kids, you know, I've, 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 in the warm embrace of my kids, I feel safe. I feel complete. Yeah. I feel that I'm, I'm, I mean something. I, I have a, play, a place in the universe. And uh, there are seven great kids, four sons, three daughters. And so if I dribble to the left, I got my son Patrick going to pick me back up. If I, if I stumble to the right, there's Jordan to grab me. If I burst into tears, Celeste is going to cheer me up. I, 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 I'm covered. I'm safe. I love that. I'm a sentimental guy, so I love that. It, good for you. Good for that you. That sucks. So, Stuart, thank you so much for your time today. Really, really enjoyed it. Love the energy. You know, you, and you have to, I, I was going to ask, you know, I think I'm a pretty energetic guy, my, but my God, how you find the time in each day to do all the things that you've done. Congratulations to you on all that. So thanks for joining on the story behind the song. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks for listening. Take care now. That was Stuart Copeland, drummer and renaissance man of the police, sharing the story behind the band's iconic song, Roxanne, from the band's debut album, Outlandis D'Amour, which celebrates its 45th anniversary this year. I'm your host, Peter Chotti. You can follow me on Twitter at P Chotti. That's P as in Peter, C like cat, S like Sam, A like Apple, T like Tom, H like Harry, Y like yellow. And at creativemedia.biz. For more of the story behind the song, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tune in on the third Monday of every month for new episodes. And make sure you're following the Consequence Podcast Network to keep up to date with all our series at consequence.net forward slash consequence dash podcast dash network. And as always, thanks for listening to the story behind the song. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.